There are really two camps of real estate investors, ones who swear by it and feel it's the best way to build wealth and others who have gotten beat up by this beast and have taken their hat out of the ring. Today's guest, Christine Xu, took some huge hits on her first deal that would have taken any average investor out of the game. She continues to build her portfolio and is on today to help investors prevent making the same very costly mistakes. This is Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate, where we guide you through the relentless pursuit of financial independence. I'm your host, Justin Moy, Managing Partner at Perpetual Wealth Capital, a multifamily real estate investing firm that lets everyday people invest passively in income-producing apartment buildings. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate. Today, I am sitting down with Christine Shu. Now, Christine and I have been in a few masterminds together. We've met at a few conferences, and I've been doing my best to get our schedules to match to get her on the show for a little bit now because she has an amazing story. It's something that everybody needs to hear. And really, Christine, to not sugarcoat it, it's kind of a horror story. It's things that didn't go well and at a really pivotal moment of your investing career, which is that very first transaction, the very first deal. And so a lot of people, if they experience what you went through, those are a lot of the naysayers of real estate, right? Oh, real estate doesn't work. This investing method doesn't work. It's just a money pit, all those things. But you lived it. You've been there, done that. And you, of course, live to tell the story and you're here to tell our audience. And so we're really excited. Thank you so much for having me. I am very excited to be here. Yes. So let's, I mean, really dive right into it. So tell us about that first deal horror story. Were you house hacking or were you flipping or start all the way from the beginning? Yes. I started real estate doing the Burr strategy. So for those who don't know what Burr stands for, it's not I'm cold Burr. I mean, it's <laughs> like that, but it's an acronym for buy, rehab, rent, refinance, and repeat. So it's supposed to be a scalable process. My first property was a Burr strategy property. And the great thing about it is you can just use one pool of capital and recycle that to accumulate more and more assets. So in principle, it's a great strategy, but it just didn't go very well for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Let's start from the beginning. I mean, you're starting off and this is your very first run at an investment property, correct? Did you have a personal property at this point, or is this your very first introduction into the real estate ownership game? So it wasn't my first introduction. I had a couple rental properties before that and really just became an accidental landlord. So in the homes that I've lived in in the past, instead of selling them right away, I would just keep them for a while and rent them out and not know anything about analyzing numbers or even coming to the right rent number. <laughs> so This was the first strategy where I came in as an investor, trying to analyze everything first, just being very strategic about every step. That's awesome. So walk us through that journey because I have a little bit of a cheat code because I've heard the story and I've seen you talk about it, but tell us just about it. Start from the beginning. What step in the process were you at and walk us through exactly how things went wrong. And then at the end, we'll talk about how you could have, and maybe you do prevent them now. Absolutely. So this property is in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. 
And it's a row home built in the 1920s, so pretty old. And parts of Philadelphia are rather distressed. So there's certain neighborhoods that are up and coming. And this was one of them. It's kind of a class C neighborhood in West Philly. And I thought I did all the right things. I was analyzing like tons of properties, underwriting them is like maybe 10 to 15 per week, which for me was a lot being a newbie, (laughs) but sifting through the MLS, talking to wholesalers, all of that, really just trying to source deals. The only thing that I didn't personally do is door knocking or cold calling. It was out of state for me. I'm in New York myself. Okay, Everything was done virtually. And I did find a property on the MLS and the price was a little bit higher than what I was expecting from my numbers, but I was willing to kind of just leave a little bit of money in and a little bit meaning like 5,000 or less. (laughs) So I was prepared to do that and just paid a couple thousand dollars more than I should have. Went through the whole process, made an offer and negotiated a little bit. And funny thing, my realtor was actually the seller's realtor as well. So it was a dual agent Mm -hmm. scenario, which a lot of people say tread with caution. And I also do recommend that, but it turned out that she was really good where she actually negotiated to the seller on my behalf because she knew both sides and just really wanted it to work for both the seller and the buyer. So I was appreciative of that. I came in at like maybe 1500 less than what we had agreed upon. And yeah, everything was fine. Got the property. Then next step was to hire a contractor. So hired a contractor and thought he was great. He was so buttoned up. He even had his own like branding on his like shirt swag and his yep. truck had his <laughs> logo. So I thought he was legit. But turned out I was his first client. Really? <laughs> Yes. Ever. He did some little side jobs on his own for other people, probably Mm -hmm. for friends, but this is his first larger rehab. And it wasn't even a gut renovation. Mm -hmm. It was just pretty cosmetic, but still Mm -hmm. there were a lot of things that had to be done. How did you find him? I had found him on a investors forum on Facebook. And so I thought, okay, not many investors that I could get referrals from. So I just went there and I tried to do the right things. I'm like, hey, do you have any referrals that I could call? He sent me some, obviously, were his buddies right? (laughs) who would only say good things. I did all the checks. He had his licenses and all of that in place. So I thought, okay, good to go. And he wasn't the most expensive. So I thought I did the right things. I got three bids and he was the middle priced one. And so I went with him and this is where the horror story starts. Maybe a weekend, the renovation, he's like, oh, we've got a problem here, Christine. I'm like, well, what's going on? Mm -hmm. He's supposed to put a recess lighting in the living room. Mm -hmm. And so he took down the ceilings, right? And found out that the joists above the ceiling were completely rotting through. And it was just moments of caving in. And he sent me a photo. It was nasty. I was like, oh my gosh, this bathtub's about to fall (laughs) because there was a bathroom there. So Mm -hmm. some water damage. He's like, this is going to cost a pretty penny, but you have to do it. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I have to do it. (laughs) So about $8,000 later, we got new joists in the ceiling 
And then literally a couple days after that, he's like, oh, Christine, we've got another problem here. (laughs) As you can pick up, there was a pattern. Six change orders later, it put us $20,000 over budget of our original renovation, which was $55,000 all in. It became $75,000. So, yeah, I mean, almost 40% additional over budget. Were a lot of these change orders things that you could have seen and prevented, or were they a lot of things that maybe either to a rookie or maybe that a home inspector would not have been able to do? Yeah, that's a tricky thing is I think everything is behind the walls or Mm -hmm. in the ceilings. Even a home inspector can't see unless if they open it. So I I think that's part of the thing that there's always things that you can't avoid as Mm -hmm. a real estate investor. You have to build in the contingencies and being a newbie myself, I just didn't build enough contingency and just didn't have the experience even to ask the right questions. So, I mean, again, I thought I did all the right things. I really tried to follow the book and just do what I thought I could do. But of course, things come up and I know we're probably going to talk about like lessons learned, but I should have had fired him. I should have just either got a second opinion from another contractor or just brought someone in altogether that even knew what they were doing a little bit more because he was new. So I think a lot of things he was relying on other people and that's why things costed so much more to address them. You were both learning together. It was both Mm -hmm. of your first deals, (laughs) which is not typically the ideal situation. Sounds like it goes fairly well. Every buying has its unique challenges and escrows issues that come up. We're on our R now where we're rehabbing and we're over budget. So not great, but it's still salvageable. It's not to say that you never get change orders and we're in a renovation right now. We've gotten quite a few change orders. Cause like you said, sometimes you just can't see everything until you pull things down. We're definitely building in those contingencies you sort of need to. And so now where are we at in the process? We've got to rehab. What's the next step? So we get in a tenant. And I did hire a property management company to help me. So he listed it, took beautiful photos, and we had several applicants. And the one that we ended up with that seemed to be the most qualified was a younger girl. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's okay. You know, you can't discriminate age. But she had her pay stubs and she seemed to make three times her rent, which was our qualifying. Yep specification for a tenant. So we're like, okay, good. Her credit was like pretty good. It was above what our number was too. And then turns out she gets it, she moves in and it ends up, the neighbor calls me and says, there's trash everywhere all the time. Mm -hmm. There's about like four or five kids living there. (laughs) (laughs) And I had no idea. They're not on the lease. Uh She's like, yeah, there's also probably a couple other adults living there. There's a dog, no pets allowed on the lease. And the second month, she stopped paying rent because the pay stub was forged. She was working, quote unquote, for her aunt who had a catering company. And apparently that she wasn't really an employee of that company. She was just asking her aunt for a favor. Tenant screening is a big thing for, I mean, it's still evolving process. I've even read a couple of studies and had some people on the podcast that have said, hey, if you look at certain data sets credit actually has no impact on greater bad tenants. It's something that's so hard, especially for a first time investor to do, especially with the property manager, you kind of hire your property manager and trust them that they understand the process. They know how to verify these things. Do you think looking back, it was more 
of a really, really good forge? Or do you think there was a misstep on the property management side, that that's something they should have caught? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I should have been more firm on the property manager, but being new. And also sometimes I have to say this being female, he's a male, it's harder to be firm about these things, but that is a lesson learned for me is to be firm. It doesn't matter. Like I'm the boss and he works for me. So he's going to have to really put in place really those steps to make sure that the best tenant comes in. You're renting out your two months in. Sounds like maybe you got one rent check. I'm not sure. Maybe you got two, but rent stops coming in. So now you're starting the process of, are you doing evictions? Are you doing cash for keys? What was the next step for you? We did have to go through the eviction process, unfortunately, and that was during COVID. So it was really tough. It took Mm -hmm. a really long time just to get through that process. And just many months later, we were finally able to address this tenant. But that was also a very painful process. Again, there's just unforeseen things that you can't avoid yeah. in the process. So when the tenant's out and you had mentioned there were a lot more people living there, there were some animals there. What was mm-hmm. the condition of the property when they had moved out? Was it salvageable or was it a whole another big turnaround? Yeah, thankfully it was still salvageable. So we were just able to do you know a light turn to get someone else in. And thankfully that was okay. <laughs> okay, so... We hit the rent and Mm -hmm. now it comes time to refinance. And again, that's really the great part about this strategy is like you said, it's one source of capital. Now you're using your refinance proceeds to buy the next one. And then buy the next one, you keep repeating it. That pot of money keeps getting bigger because you're adding more value and more value. So tell us about the refinance. How did that go? Yeah, exactly. So when the birth strategy goes right, you get all of your money back. So the money you spent to acquire the property and the costs with the construction and you get that all back into your pocket and put it on a loan. And so when it came time for refinance, I was excited. I'm like, okay, it's time to cash out. But the appraisal came down um, about 30,000 below (laughs) my projected ARV. And so I'm scratching my head here like, oh my goodness, can I catch a break here? Because every step is not working out smoothly for me. So I had to leave a ton of money in, like 50, 60,000 in, which is even way more than if I were just to buy something turnkey. Yeah. <laughs> but it's okay. I wasn't freaking out. This is my first experience. And I would say for any new investor, usually in your first deal, you might lose some money. But if you're doing it right in real estate, you will always recoup your losses because there will always be more gains later. And if you hold a property for long enough, it will inevitably appreciate over time. So you won't get your money back. So I wasn't too worried. (laughs) I was just like, I'm paying for the experience here. Exactly. I like what you said, you're paying for the experience. In a way, you can just say that's the cost of doing business, just like maybe you market or just like you do other things, or you pay for coaching or mentorships. It's a cost. And that's one thing that real estate investors have to do over maybe people purchasing real estate for personal use. It's just a cost of doing business. And as long as you have enough capital to live to fight another day and continue to weather the storms, in the long run, you'll almost always come out on top. In very, very, very few scenarios, can you mess it up so bad that you cannot last in the long game? So looking back, I mean, do you still have that property? You still hold it or did you sort of get rid of it? No, I still have it. So I refinanced it. And of course I can't sell it because I have a prepayment penalty on sure. it. So I'm going to be holding on to it for at least three to five years. 
it's a good experience. And the last step of Burr was to repeat the process. Yeah. So I did it three more times after that. <laughs> How did those three go? Just as many hiccups or are they a lot smoother? There were some hiccups. I had this strategy change a little bit because it was purchased as a portfolio of three and they were all purchased already placed with tenants. So I had to go through the process of kind of getting it ready for the rest of the steps of Burr, which includes either waiting out leases or evicting tenants as needed and just working and arranging the tenant situations. So some of them I'm still working on right now. And so... Looking back, I mean, what did you do when you purchased these ones now? What did you do differently to avoid? Because there were a lot of steps where I wouldn't say, I don't know if you necessarily did anything wrong, but sometimes it's just, hey, you can't see these things or you just don't know. Your first mm-hmm. time, you just, there's no books or there's no podcast to tell you about it, about everything that you need to prepare for. You just don't know. So what did you incorporate the second time around that you maybe did not do the first that has helped prevent some of these and that you'll continue to, I guess, recommend to the listeners to do. This might be a little bit unconventional, but I would say network with people in the industry and get to know them because referrals are key. Finding trusted people on your team, especially for me, investing out of state, you need the right people to be your boots on the ground. You have to trust them a hundred percent. It may not even have to be a direct network. It could be someone who's doing exactly what you're doing and is maybe five or six steps ahead of you and already has built out a team. You can leverage them and just ask for referrals if you can borrow their resources kind of thing. So I would say get out there in the industry, get to know people and just share your experience start those conversations. So people share their experiences, especially those who are ahead of you. How would you network? You said you were in some Facebook groups. It sounds like where have those been pretty successful for you or did they steer you wrong the first time with the contractor and you you kind of haven't been back since? I actually joined a mentorship group for the Burr strategy and just made friends in the industry that way. And a coach that was super helpful And then as you grow with your peers in these types of coaching courses, then you can exchange ideas with them and like kind of blacklist certain people with them, like, hey, steer clear of them or they're good, like kind of thing. And that's been extremely helpful. It's just building that community. Good. So community and networking so that you can have those referrals. Because a lot of times as investors, people don't understand we're in a way kind of like project managers where mm-hmm. I'm not doing the rehab, but I'm pulling in the teams that are, I'm not managing the property, but I'm pulling the teams that are, and we're syncing those strategies up and really having that higher level vision. So you need yeah. somebody and those contractors, those vendors to be able to handle the steps needed to take the property from where you purchased it to where your vision is, and then make recommendations and help guide your decisions along the way. So we have a great network of people. What about anything in the process? It sounds like What made the property appraised for less? Did you just not have solid comps when you were underwriting it the first time or did the market just shift? What happened there? So for Philadelphia, that specific market is tricky because the market values are almost block to block. Mm -hmm. You can have one block that's amazing and right next door is totally opposite of that. Mm -hmm. So I think I just didn't know the area well enough because I don't live there. I don't know a lot of people who do live there either. So It was just me being new to the market, not really having that knowledge of where to go. So I think 
that's part of the learning curve is to know your market really well. And sometimes it's hard to know it even before you go and invest in it. So that's yeah. again, part of the process. And again, I mean, having those great vendors, property managers can be able to give you insight on properties. And that could even be a way to vet them. You just ask them about certain neighborhoods. Even if you know it's a bad neighborhood, ask them about it. Just see what they say. If they contradict you or contradict what other people have said, maybe you have to dig in or your ears kind of perk up as to why they're saying contradictory facts. But it's another way of doing due diligence, kind of asking questions that you already know the answer to and just seeing what their responses are. So, I mean, I like it. It's such valuable content to hear how things can go wrong because there's a lot of people who sell the beautiful part of real estate and there's a lot of it. And I don't want anyone to get scared. There's a lot of upside and there's a lot that you can benefit from. But if you're in this business long enough, you're going to take hits, whether it's an early on mid in your career or at the, towards the end, you will take hits if you stay in the business long, enough, just like anything else. Maybe you got yours out of the way early and now it's just all up from here for you. So that's fantastic. What are you up to now? It sounds like you're still doing some burrs. Are you sticking to that strategy? Are you diversifying your strategy? Tell us about what's on the horizon for you. I am shifting my strategy now. So just finishing out, stabilizing the properties that I do have in the Burr portfolio and moving towards now syndicating larger deals in the multifamily space. What made you want to switch over? So it's all the horror stories. They just kept adding up for me. (laughs) And not to scare anyone away from being a landlord. Being a landlord is great. There is, as you mentioned, a lot of upside to it. But with that, there were cars crashing into the property. There were leaks. There were floods. Tenants not paying once again doing just a lot of evictions. It's never pleasant to do an eviction. I hate doing that and kicking people out on the street. It's just horrible. I don't want to be doing it, but when they are just refusing to pay rent long-term, it hits us too as landlords. So it's just one hit after the other. And I'm just like, I don't know if this is sustainable because the more properties you have, the more problems you will have as they accumulate. And I just kind of wanted to work as a team too, with people who have more expertise than me, because I feel like I was doing everything on my own. So even though I had my community of advisors and peers that I could talk with about things, I was still doing everything on my own. Mm -hmm. Whereas syndicating literally means group investing. So in the syndication space, you're working with a team of professionals. People have been doing this usually are like key sponsors with a lot of experience. You can leverage their knowledge and even their networks and work on the same team with them on the same property and have equity in it. That part's super cool. And also the other reason is a lot of my friends started seeing what I was doing. I was like, whoa, that's so cool. Like, how can I learn more? How can I be involved? And so I feel like the best part of real estate is sharing and bringing value to others. When you can do that, it's like the wealth that comes with accumulating assets And also giving back through adding value to others through knowledge and even sharing deals with people. It's just like, it keeps going. It's contagious and it passes on forward. So I just wanted to bring those types of opportunities, even to my family and friends who started catching on to the real estate train with me. I feel like syndications is really the way to do it because I get to leverage the experience of other investors and bring in my friends and family yeah. with me and just people in my circle and audience. So yeah. 
That's yeah. awesome. I mean, syndication has so many different angles that you can play and different ways you can approach it. With the bigger properties, there's much more room for bigger teams. A lot of people think, hey, the bigger the property, the kind of scarier it is or the harder it is. It's typically actually the opposite. You have better partners, more experienced vendors. It's a much more close network where that guy who was doing his very first job would not be in the syndication space. I mean, he would have gotten vetted out a long time ago. His name's not being thrown around in that group that's doing that. So I really like it. Christine, how can people get a hold of you and who should reach out and get in touch? Yes. So those who are interested in learning more can visit my website, which is Nobly Vest. So it's all about syndications. If you're interested in learning more about that, it's spelled N-O-B-L-I-V-E-S-T. And if you want to learn more about me personally, I do post a lot on LinkedIn, a lot of my stories. And I think that's how you saw one of my horror stories with the example I gave, just hoping to bring a lot of value to people through LinkedIn, also through educating and in real estate. So follow me on LinkedIn, Christine Shu. Look for me on the profiles and happy to connect. Listeners, we are going to put all of those resources in the show notes. And of course, if you're there, if you haven't already, make sure you download our free ebook, The Definitive Guide to Building Generational Wealth and Passive Cash Flow Through Multifamily Real Estate. Christine, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me.